Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Good morning. I'm wearing Charlie Brown shirt this morning. Oh, I like Charlie Brown shirt. Yeah. That's cool. Very retro. Yeah. I was going to say, is it authentically like from the 70s or did you get this recently? No. <laughs> In fact, the oldest shirt I have is from 1986. Mm-hmm. And I wore it on our honeymoon. So I've just kept it. Patty bought it for me and... Yeah, it's a little more color than you're used to me wearing, but different shades of purple. And uh, it's not a, it's a plaid beach shirt. Oh, nice. So okay. it's straight across, untuck. Hello. Hello. Hi, Kim. We're yeah. talking about shirts. This is my Charlie Brown shirt. Oh, I love it. And that I have a shirt from my honeymoon, which was 38 years ago. Still in style, at least for the beach. <laughs> nice. Hello, friends. As you know, if you've listened in before, this podcast is about how joy and pain often go together in this life. So for a while now, I have wanted to discuss a topic that has been very painful here in the U.S., especially when it comes to faith and Christianity. That topic is gender, and specifically the experience of being transgender. Now, this topic is enormous. Gender opens up questions of how many genders are there, and what are the roles that people of certain genders should have or should not have, which goes for jobs as well as authority in marriage relationships. Gender is also often linked to the topic of sexuality, meaning what gender of person is it proper for someone to want to be in a romantic relationship with. But we don't actually have time to talk about all of those things, nor are we brilliant enough to solve all of the issues in the next hour. So we're going to narrow our focus down only to the experience of being transgender and we're going to narrow it even further by talking about one person's experience of having their spouse transition from one gender to another and for that i can think of no one lovelier than kim van essen kim and mish van essen live in richmond virginia They have Christian and Jewish backgrounds, respectively, and Mish is a faith-focused consultant and scholar, and Kim works in the nonprofit world. They got married in 2012 and had two children, and then a few years ago, Mish told Kim that something needed to change. So I was wondering if you could set the stage for that first conversation when Mish broached the trans subject. Yeah, yeah, I can set the scene. So we had been spending eight months in um, the Pacific Northwest 
Um, yeah, it was beautiful. Um, Nish was a worship pastor for a pretty large church, but we realized that we couldn't stay with the church there. And us both moving to remote work, we decided let's move back closer to family. My family is still in Northern Virginia, but we don't like Northern Virginia traffic. So we picked Richmond. So we had just moved to Richmond. We were living in an apartment um, downtown and with our two kids. It was towards the end of the more severe lockdowns and things. So, and just to clarify, this is 2021. Yeah. So the first like, oh, we really need to deal with this conversation um, happened in that apartment. And I joke that my wife is all in. She's very intense. She does everything all the way, right away. And so it went from, great, my mom is in town. She can watch the kids and we can have lunch together. To, would you love me if I cut off this male part of myself? And it was very um, abrupt. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I was like, I think think we need to backtrack and figure out why you're asking me this question right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, so the, the following hour, hour and a half was actually full of a lot of sort of small hurts between the two of us that we have to apologize for and, and, and kind of recover from because it was so abrupt and it was so in, in each other's faces because I, I tend to speak before I process, but I really am a process person. So, so my reaction was, well, no, I mean, we, we'd stay great friends, but no, of course, you, like, you know, this or, you know, very sort of brush it off. And she, she was just internally devastated thinking, you know, but this is what I've been thinking through the last few weeks or whatever. And, and now you're said that, like, our life is over. Everything that we have is gone. The, the part that we then had to circle back and realize that we actually had started this conversation previously and we just didn't have the words and the terms for it before was that um, before I met Mish, so nine, 10, 10, 11 years previous to this conversation, um, she had gone through therapy and had started the process of maybe I want to transition in her home country. So my wife is Dutch and they have a very systematic process that you really have to meet all these milestones and everything. So she was meeting the therapy milestones at that point. And then a lot of things happened in her life. And then she met me. And so I was aware that that had happened back then, but it was, frankly, we had kind of triaged a lot of things that she was dealing with. And that just was not a top priority when we met. It was sort of like, yes, I've had these conversations and these desires or whatever, but that's, you know, that's almost a decade ago um, kind of feeling so my initial thought with it was feeling really betrayed <laughs> because I was like, we tell each other everything. We're each other's best friends. Um, it's not exaggerated that we're great communicators. We, we really talk about all sorts of things. So for me, it felt like, how long have you been thinking about this? Mm. It feels like you have some formed thoughts about this. Mm. What were your thoughts about the kids? Um, I don't think so. I never, I never visualized 
the kids living with me in a different house or Mm -hmm. anything like that. Um, I don't know. I think it was sort of this like deep seated, like, no, this is my person. We're still going to figure it out. I might be upset with you in this moment, but that doesn't negate everything that you've built with me um, over the course of years. So that part was, was less hard. Um, Honestly, it was more so with the kids that they were around when all of the tensions were high. You know, there was a good three or four months where like the atmosphere in our apartment was just very like shoulders up. Are we going to have to go in circles talking about these topics again tonight? Um, Like, okay, go play in the other room because we need to have, you know, we've touched on one more thing that we need to go over constantly. Um, Is it okay to share how old the kids were at that stage? Yeah, at that time they were two and six around there. So pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. So we didn't, um, we didn't invite them in when it was all still like a question mark for obvious reasons. We kind of wanted to have some formed, um, things before we did, but, but we are, are forthright with our kids. So we said, you know, you, at the time, mama and papa have like things to talk about. So thank you for giving us some time or, you know, let's let's go to the playground now i'm sorry you know we made you (laughs) play inside for all morning or whatever it was um but i think that was the most hard was that you know as parents you don't have this extended period throughout your day where you can like okay now let's i'm ready to like go back into that conversation for a few hours because you know you have responsibilities Mm -hmm. and so when you got to a decision that Misha was going to move forward in this transition. I'm wondering if you're okay with sharing, like what actually did the transition entail? Um, Like how long has it taken? How many surgeries were involved? All, all those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, I will preface it by saying that for us, and I think I, I would imagine for majority of people, it was healthier for us to take it, one very small step at a time. You know, my my wife's work is around mental models. And so we had this clear understanding that neither one of us is going to be okay if we jump fully into this and do all the things all at once. Um, it's going to be very jarring for us and for our kids and for everybody. So, you know, at first she said, well, okay, well, maybe I don't end up all the way Um, on the other end of the gender spectrum, maybe I just, you know, maybe it's just not what I am right now. So the first steps were completely social. It's she jokes about it now, but she had, you know, most of our marriage had a full beard at the time that we were having this conversation, big mustache, Ted Lasso style. (laughs) So, um, so it was things like, I'm going to shave every day. I, I don't want facial hair anymore. Um, I'm the thing I'm going to start growing out my hair, um, things like that. And I sort of had my like weird sticking points that she was respectful of. She didn't understand it, but like I had my little things. I was like, I don't know what I'll do if I see you in heels. I just don't know. Um, 
and I appreciate that you want to see what the long hair will look like, but wigs will probably feel really weird to me. And so she was respectful of that. She said, okay, I'm, you know, I'm not attached to doing that right now in our life. <laughs> so, um, and then the other way around of like, if she was like, I really need you to be comfortable with me shopping in the women's section, which theoretically I didn't have a problem with, but like actually walking in and, and standing there was like an interesting difference for me. Um, so we had this give and take of these small changes that we were making. Um, but it's important to understand too, that even before all of this, she had made it very clear early on in our marriage that she didn't appreciate being thrown in with a lot of stereotypes. So she was like, I don't like to be referred to as like, Oh, you guys, you guys are all the same. Like men always do this or things like that. So we had a lot of the language down already. I, I had no expectation that, you know, she had to be this big lumberjack type personality. That wasn't who she was anyway. So um, but it was a lot of the, the cosmetic, the visual stuff. Um, so my wife has also been in therapy for 30 years. So she, she does the work. She's really self-aware. And so she sort of was working through what, what she felt like she was needing to do in the next steps. Um, so she's talking through this with the therapist at the same time that we're, you know, working through this. And she said, okay, now I'd like to start, um, medication as a part of the transition so she was on testosterone blockers and small doses of um estrogen for that and that was kind of the first um like concrete steps that she was taking it's a long answer because it was it was a long process we didn't like i said we didn't decide to go all in all at once um which was a big deal for her as i mentioned so um so she was on hormones and um, insurance actually has you, you have to be on hormones for a year before you have <laughs> surgeries. Um, so she um, was on hormones for a full year. You probably are aware, but um, the whole dysphoria around gender um, is different for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so for her, her testicles were like, there's, this is just the one thing that like, it does not feel a part of my body since I was a toddler, it doesn't feel a part of my body. I don't want it. <laughs> um, and practically speaking, we have two kids. We don't need it. Like all of those things were kind of like, this is a great entryway into seeing maybe this relatively low stake surgery um, with just an orchiectomy would be enough. Mm-hmm. So we did that. We, I mean, <laughs> I helped her. She went through it. Um <laughs> And um, she recovered from that. It did alleviate a lot of um, dysphoria, but she said, truly, I really need a full bottom surgery. So um, she had that as well. And that was the most recent change that she had. So a couple of questions and you might, this kind of goes back in there, but when you talk about the big beard and the mustache, did you talk about that at all? Was she hiding behind that big manly beard that I can't grow for anything? 63 and I still have gaps here where there's no whiskers. Um, 
Did you talk about that at all, or was that just a no big deal? Get rid of the beard and get rid of the mustache. We did talk about it when she immigrated here. Americans are funny. They were like, "You're so European." Um, you know, she was well groomed. She had clothes that like fitted her, and all of those things, but still masculine, like still male presenting. Um, my circle at that time was people that I had grown up with, with conservative beliefs. So she kind of slowly and slowly went more and more in that direction. She connects very well with people. And so she was seeing like, okay, I can enjoy going and shooting again, Virginian. <laughs> I, I can enjoy going shooting and I can, she's always been techie, which is, you know, so male to a lot of people. So I can talk about coding and building my own computer and all those things. So she kind of just said, I'm going to lean into all these things um, and kind of slowly assimilated into the community that I had, the family and the friends that I just had grown up with. So now we recognize that like the facial hair and things like that were signs of a pretty deep depression and it's kind of stark when you see pictures of her. Like there are a lot of pictures where it's just like dark rings under the eyes, kind of sunken in and has this big beard um, as opposed to now where she's kind of like glowing and, and all of that. So we definitely talked about it, that and the sort of um, embracing like the, the hyper masculine clothing, like lots of plaid and stuff. And part of it was just the excitement of like, being in America, I was like, oh, Americans, like, they're so... Not a Charlie <laughs> Brown shirt? No, she probably would have more preferred something like that. But it's it's funny how she she just sort of went for it with with all of those things. Um, and, you know, and people encourage it. Like, when they, they saw her get into it, they were like, yeah, here's more, you know, Mm-hmm. tough clothing and, and stuff like that. And she's like, okay, they gave it to me. I'll wear it. Um, at this point, I'm genuinely not myself, so it doesn't really matter. I'll just wear whatever. <laughs> Did the kids know anything that was going on at that point? Did your family know what was going on at that point? Her family know what's going on? I mean, all those kind of things was, were they talked out first or was that just a discussion afterwards? Remember, yeah, it, I'm going to pry too much. I'm just trying to listen to what it was like. So feel comfortable however you want to with those questions. Yeah, no, I mean, we're super open about it. And I think for us, it's more sensitive that like, we never want to give the impression that what she decided to do is the prescription for everyone who's going through the same thing. So that's more where it's sensitive for us is like, I always want to clarify that, you know, my wife made these decisions, but you can be trans and never have a surgery and you never have hormones and all of those things. Um, so, but with the family relationships and things, we're completely open. So our kids, we talked about it with them once we, once she was going on hormones because kids are observant and they would know 
all of, you know, the changes they were seeing. And it was funny because my wife sort of, we, we knew that it was coming and then I was out somewhere and she texted and she said, I'm so sorry. I don't know how it happened, but I just explained to our son, who's the oldest, everything that was going on with me. I was like, I would have done it with you. I don't know why. It just, it seemed like the moment and he was talking about something and I just did it. And I was like, okay, that's fine. So the kids just kind of understood it. I mean, the two-year-old really had no opinion whatsoever on it. Um, <laughs> but the the six-year-old, it was sort of like, well, you know, Ema looks like a boy, but she really feels more like a girl on the inside. And so she's going to be doing some things to see like how she wants to look and all of that stuff. Um, and our son said, okay, can I watch my show? now and it was like okay <laughs> um our daughter surprisingly just because toddlers are stubborn um was also fine with you know going with like the name changes and stuff like that she later we sort of saw that there were like some attachment issues because she she didn't know what to do with the changes and didn't have the words to do anything with the changes but the um but the conversations were actually pretty easy with them and then my parents were, the buildup was really hard. Um, mm. So we're very close with my parents. They became Christians 45 years ago, something like that, um, in this Bible church that I grew up in. So, and, you know, throughout our marriage and, you know, my growing up with them beforehand, there had been enough comments and stuff that were not, that were always kind and um, my parents are very kind but um which were but we're very you know but this is what we believe about that community and and that kind of stuff so we were nervous about it and especially Mish um because she actually doesn't speak to her parents anymore unrelated to this but due to trauma growing up she was in the foster system for the latter part of her growing up so so my parents were her parents too. Um, like when we got married, they became her parents. So it was a lot rested on how they would respond to things. And it, the, when we started talking to them about it, that she was still in kind of that middle road of maybe I'm a they, maybe I'm, you know, somewhere in between. So it was important for us that we invited them in before the big, decisions were made because we didn't want them to be um, blindsided by anything. So yeah, I had a phone call with my mom and kind of said, this is how Misha's been feeling. You know, she's going by Michelle at the time, but this is how she's been feeling. Um, she's been, you know, experimenting with being called they, them as their, as, as their pronouns. And Right now it's just clothing and, and she is starting hormones, but that's, you know, where we're at right now. And then um, my mom took it very well. She said, okay, I don't fully understand um, a lot of these things, but it was very sweet. She said, well, just starting out, like, we love you guys. We love me. That's not going to change. Um, but can we FaceTime with my dad as well, FaceTime the four of us and kind of 
hear more and ask some questions, which we did like the next day or a couple of days later. I mean, that was a, a genuinely loving response of your mom there. Knowing more now from other people, what's the percentage of the parent saying, I love you, I'm with you? I mean, not a, you don't know exact, but just. It was. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't have obviously real numbers on that, but, um, you know, in my field, for instance, youth who come out in that way, general population is about 11%. That's 11% of the whole LGBTQ community, right? Not just trans youth. Yeah. And now many of those end up in foster care. Around 30%. So you can already kind of start to see how a lot of the family reactions probably are to um, to hearing that news. Um, and anecdotally, um, because we are friends with other people in the community here, um, a lot of not being allowed to stay at home or if they came out as adults and that's not really a factor, then it's more, there's a lot of passive aggressive, not wanting to talk about it. That's a lot of the experience I hear from others. So we're really, really grateful that my parents, and I think being that, you know, I think faith is a part of this conversation today. I think God was really laying a foundation around that because there were other things coming up that my parents were like starting to, walk through um as i think a lot of people in faith spaces were since 2019 2020 a lot of like i don't i don't like what i'm hearing from certain faith leaders i don't think this is how god is calling me to be um on other topics so i think it was probably still really surprising (laughs) i'm sure it wasn't easy um but i think it was one piece of a larger journey that they were going through which was also super helpful yeah for sure so you talked about your families i'm curious how just other random people on the street react to you like i've heard you before say that richmond is a very affirming city to live in but have you had any experiences of people just being downright rotten yeah Yeah, it's a little bit less likely when I'm there or when the kids are there. I think people have like a little bit of like a more like a a social awareness that like when little kids are around, they're going to be not conspicuous about things. So I think the couple of bigger incidents in our city, and we just had them when she's traveled elsewhere, but have been when I'm home and she'll text me or call me and be like, I'm really unsafe right now. And, you know, it's interesting because there are so many layers to it. Is it because of it is wrong that you are clearly someone transitioning or is it now you're female presenting because she's had people shout their phone numbers at her, which I'm like, yeah, that's happened to me. (laughs) Um, You know, she's had somebody kind of extra close in an empty grocery aisle, which I'm like, yeah, I've had that happen to me. So So the one incident where it was genuinely upsetting and, you know, I didn't know if I needed to like get the kids in an Uber and like go find her was what I think were college kids, like undergrad college kids, because we are a college town. 
actually directly saying things to her as she's waiting for a food order. And, you know, that, and that feeling of it's escalating um, and there's like really no way to control it. And people who were working there are also that age. So they're not gonna, (laughs) they're not gonna intervene. Um, So uh, we've had a few moments like that where it's like, okay, well, what's your plan? How are you going to get yourself out of this situation? Go ahead. Jim. I'm the guy here. I'm a little bit confused. The college boys, were they hitting on her or were they abusing her for assuming she was trans? I guess mm-hmm. if you hear what I'm saying there, that sounds like two different things of both wrong. Uh, but it sounds like two different things, if I'm correct there. Yeah. I don't know how much time in my life I'll, I'll use speculating on, like, the motivations behind people like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, you know, it's that inserting yourself in an unwelcome way into somebody else's life either way. And both the commonality is both come with a certain level of, like, is this a threat? is this something that I actually have to think through? You know, the, the phone number incident was her putting our kids in the car at eight o'clock in the morning. Like you're on your, like you're biking by on your commute, I assume. Like, what is your intention behind doing this? Um, you know, but I, so I was on the porch and I ended up walking all the way down to our car and just kind of being there just in case, you know, and she's thinking like, is it faster to get in the car or maybe go back inside? Um, because you just don't know, like, whether it's because you're a woman or because you're trans, it's always that level of now, you know, my head is on a swivel, I need to figure out exactly what's happening in this situation. Mm-hmm. So in all of this, how has it affected your faith? And how has it affected your relationship with other Christians? Interestingly, I did grow up in a conservative um, Bible church, but I didn't ever fully live the way some of my peers lived. Um, And part of that was that my parents, you know, did want those values for us. They did want, you know, have your quiet time every day in the morning. Don't drink before you're 21. They wanted all of those kind of outward expressions, but they're not the parents to really, um, I will say for myself, I have a sister. I'll let her have her own lived experience with that. But for myself, I never felt like you have to. And we're going to talk about all the legalese of Christianity about why you have to. It was, um, they have personal spiritual relationships. They wanted that for us. So that was really freeing for me. So as I went off to college and my conservative talking points were not jiving, in conversation with people who had different backgrounds than me and different Christianity than me. And then also moving over to Amsterdam for a ministry for a while. And, you know, international Christians all have a various, you know, experiences with their faith too. All that happened before I even met me. So I've had a long process of expanding what I believed and what I thought was true. So I went from, you know, I love everybody, but marriage is between one man and one woman in high school to, 
you know, I think there are a lot of things that I have no place to say anything about, <laughs> about people, um, which was still not what I think today, but I had reached a pretty neutral point on a lot of points of conservative faith. So all that to say, I was at a good place when this happened to go, this doesn't conflict with how I see God and what I believe, which to your second question was not how a lot of other people felt <laughs> about us embracing this process. You know, it's been a wide range. Um, some of the most conservative people who were our friends were like, you're still you and we love you. And that was a nice surprise. Others quietly and anonymously send us um, detransitioning books in the mail, you know? So it was sort of a wide spectrum. Nobody really willing to confront directly, um, which is a little bit of the in-person American way, I feel. The strangers online can confront all day long, <laughs> but the people who knew us in real life um, took a very kind of passive approach, just quietly not engaging anymore and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, we weren't in that world anymore. My parents had it a lot more than we did because they, at that time, were still at their church of 40 plus years attending small groups and, and all of those things. So they, they had a harder time once they started to slowly tell some trusted people um, what was going on. Did they end up feeling the need to leave or are they still at that church or? They, they have left. Yeah. For not just, not just because of us. I think things were reawakened in them. Like my dad has never understood why women can't lead mm. in a church my mom very much so. <laughs> so over time, she was like, well, why did we give salary to that person? And we're giving gift cards and a, and a thank you note to this person. And the only difference is one is a man and one is a woman. So I can't claim that ours was the only reason that they left, but they did, they did end up leaving um, that church. I think Susan would say I'm a love person. Would you say I'm a love person? No, Jeff. Everyone knows that you are super mean. <laughs> so, um, personally, this subject, it's hard for me because I don't understand it. It's interesting to listen to... Uh, stories about your wife who's lived both sides of the journey where, I mean, I, I think there are people that are um, have a lot of judgment and say, no, this is it, period. I'd be there with a cup of tea, just kind of, I don't know if confused is the right word. Susan, what's the right word for me there? I think what you're getting at is like Kim talked about her her friends, her conservative friends who just kind of like stopped talking to them. Kim, would you agree that in instances when people don't understand in on any topic, in instances when people don't understand what's going on in your life, it's better to dig into the relationship and learn as opposed to just like quietly walk out the back door and leave? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's different for everybody. So Misha's also an educator and also a speaker and a writer. So she's naturally more inclined to say, if you're respectful, I'm open to questions. Um, so with that caveat to not just approach the person in your life and bombard them with questions, <laughs> I think it's always better to lean in as really my parents did and said like, okay, what does that term mean? And what does, what does that mean for you? And I think listening is the first step. I think the second step is harder, which is to not overlay your own thinking on what you hear. And by that, I mean, you can ask the most genuine questions, but if in the back of your mind, you're already forming, I've got three scriptures I want to bring up when they're done talking, then you're not really there. <laughs> you're not really there to listen, which happens a lot. You know, well, what about Romans? What about this? What about that? But I think it's that genuinely wanting to hear what you're listening to that makes the difference. And, and you know, Misha and I tried to have the same respect in the other direction that, you know, you're, you're being respectful. You genuinely want to know we're not trying to change your mind. It's more so that you can start to see her and us as people and not as a cause to sort of conquer, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The linchpin is unity is not the absence of diversity. And people sort of understand that in a lot of spaces when it comes to Christianity, suddenly it's no, there's one party line. There's one way of being. So in our household, we talk a lot about ambiguity, the idea of ambiguity. Can two things hold tension with each other and you be okay? <laughs> um, that kind of stuff. And I think that is the question that a lot of people have to confront is, can I lock arms with you if we disagree or we decide that we're okay being different? Again, I'll speak for myself. It's a challenge in, in, in that direction as well. And I see people who I perceive to be actively hurting other people in the name of their faith. I have a visceral reaction at the idea of locking arms with them. And that's sort of the challenge. I really liked your comment. Unity does not mean a lack of diversity. I, I haven't heard it said that way. I don't like to judge anybody. I don't think it's my job. And if you want a proof text, there are probably more statements, particularly in the Old Testament, that say, do not judge uh, versus judge this thing. Um, I think the most important thing for me as a pastor for 35 years was helping people understand their love by God wherever they are. And that's what I would want to have happen for anybody. So it sounds like you both, your wife and you, understand 
that you're loved by God. Would that be a correct statement? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I mean, in in deconstruction for some people from their childhood, it means I have to throw God away with all the weird teaching and all the, you know, all, all the stuff that's going on there. And um, I celebrate that you know that you're loved by God and you don't have to push God aside because you're dealing with something different and hard for people. Yeah, thank you. That's been very good for us to have that foundation I've alluded to. And again, my wife is very open, so I share with full permission um, that she's gone through a lot of traumatic events over the course of her life. So there was a lot of opportunity to sort of decide whether or not you believe in a God that can let that happen um, and and things like that. And she is, she is Jewish, um, but she also believes in Jesus and has a seminary degree, almost two seminary degrees now. So it definitely has been a process. She's not one to just by default decide that she's loved by God. It's definitely been a long conversation and, and exploring um, and coming to that conclusion. So my last question is, where would you mark the past few years for you on the spectrum of pain on one end and joy on the other? You gave me this question beforehand, and I apologize for being a little contrary, but I think they're both right in the middle together because the last few years have asked me to stretch and know myself more which is always painful it's it was it's marked by the first times that i've sought counseling for you know having to go through many many life events all at once um and the emotional mental kind of consequences of that a lot of uncertainty a lot of it's not stable how do we make it stable which is painful but on the other hand, it's felt like the very, very last thing that my wife and I wouldn't look in the eye is over. So we're free. There's a joy in knowing that there's nothing left being held back. There's nothing left being unsaid. There's also an immense joy in um, seeing her joy in being who she is. So I would encourage each person listening wherever you are on this topic that we're talking about today, to first hold God close to your heart and feel that love that God has for you. And take your time. Don't just make a quick decision one way or the other, but take your time and listen to other people and work out these things that we've talked about today. Okay. So I think that's our time for today. Kim, thank you so much for taking the time and for being so eloquent and for sharing your story. Oh gosh. So eloquent. Thank you for inviting thank me. So warm and inviting because you're genuine and I appreciate that. Thank you. It was so nice to meet you, Jeff. Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. Until next time. Live well.